On November 9, 2016, in the coastal town of Tofu, Mozambique, Ellie Warren's lifeless body was found face down in the sand with her bikini bottoms around her ankles. Fishermen found Ellie's body near a toilet block, which was the location of the small coastal town's only freshwater taps. It's there that the fishermen go each morning to get their boats ready for the day. On this typical beautiful morning, as the sun was rising over the ocean, the local fishermen were startled to find the body of a young female tourist sprawled in the sand. They immediately went to the police, and two officers were dispatched to the scene. Photos were taken, and Ellie's family would be called and told that Ellie had been murdered and likely raped. Months later, police would state that Ellie hadn't been murdered at all. Instead, they believed she died from an overdose. Her parents were outraged and confused. Ellie's father, Paul Warren, would ultimately make several trips to Mozambique over several years, where he would act as detective, with great success, but also with heartbreaking despair. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy, and today we're headed to Tofu, Mozambique. Allie Warren, a young Australian, loved the ocean and adventure. She had spent six weeks volunteering for an eco-research company called Africa Underwater, alongside marine scientists. During that time, she was staying in the company Bungalows, located on Tofu Beach. Tofu is located in southeastern Mozambique. It's a popular spot for backpackers, surfers, and divers. It's one of the best places in the world to spot whale sharks, and as a bonus, you might see humpback whales, dolphins, manta rays, and more. After six weeks of diving and finally getting to swim with the whale shark, which was one of her dreams, Allie was close to ending her stay in Tofu. She had two more nights before her flight left, so she booked a short two-night stay at a nearby backpacker's hotel. A staff member at the hotel said she never arrived. When the call came in to Ellie's family announcing her death, of course they were devastated. They said that following her trip to Africa, Ellie's plan was to return home and study marine biology at university. She had volunteered several times in South America and in Africa at various environmental study locations. Her strong will and work ethic were her strengths. She was loved deeply by her family, especially her eight-year-old brother, Sam. Her boyfriend, Luke, wanted her to be remembered for her love of all things ocean and all living animals. He said she had a beautiful heart that wanted to travel the world, diving in all the oceans, exploring caves, and swimming with a variety of fish. Ellie's father said that despite just only being out of her teens at age 20, Ellie was already a seasoned traveler with an insatiable desire to help the environment and others less fortunate than herself. She worked several jobs when she was home in order to fund her next big adventure. She would often work 16 hours a day and sleep in her car between jobs. When Ellie first presented her plans to her father, he was concerned. He knew Mozambique was still recovering from a civil war and tourism wasn't well developed there, but Allie was insistent that it would be fine. She reassured him, telling him she was going with a good group of people and the brochure for her hotel and tofu looked nice. Eventually, her dad relaxed enough to trust her judgment. He kissed her goodbye and watched her hop into a car with her boyfriend who drove her to the airport. He shouted he loved her as the car drove away. Tofu is a magnet for international divers, but it's fairly difficult to reach and not a typical tourist spot. It's been said to have nearly deserted beaches, epic scuba diving, and delicious seafood at low prices. 
the people you find there are a little bit more of the adventurous type. They're typically travelers who are a little more offbeat and adventurous than others. In other words, it's not a vacation hotspot. The town of Tofu in reality is a collection of resorts, small resorts, dotted among tiny tin shacks located along unlit dirt and sand roads. Ellie loved it there. She told her father she eventually wanted to make her home in Africa. They kept in touch regularly, and her father enjoyed seeing all her Facebook posts and messages. It looked like she was having a great time, but he missed her terribly, and the house seemed painfully quiet without her in it. The night before Ellie's body was found, she had been hanging out with friends from the Castleberry Beach Lodge. There's a sunset photo of her sitting at the end of a beach table, surrounded by several female friends. She's wearing an oversized black sleeveless t-shirt and drinking from a large bottle of water. One leg was tucked up in front of her in typical teenage fashion. Her hair was sun-bleached and tousled. She looked relaxed and was smiling or laughing with her friends. She and her friends went out that night and were seen dancing in the street. Sometime after 2 a.m., a man reportedly watched her walk alone from the Paringo Beach Motel towards a street clustered with snack bars. This was towards the direction of the bathroom block, where three hours later fishermen would find Ellie's body. One of the witnesses who found her said that when they saw her, she was face down in the dirt in what was described as a Muslim prayer position, or for you yoga enthusiasts, she was in child's pose. Her underwear was around her knees. When Ellie's father heard the news, he felt his whole world spin. To him, Ellie wasn't just his daughter. She was his best friend and a real fighter, and he wasn't going to rest until he found out what happened to her and brought her the justice she deserved. He quickly boarded a plane to Africa with plans to bring her home, which he did, but not before an autopsy was performed. Once she was brought home, hundreds of people attended her funeral. Her ashes would be scattered on her favorite local beach. The autopsy had been conducted by a well-known Johannesburg pathologist named Dr. Patricia Klepp. The autopsy clearly showed that Ellie met with foul play. The preliminary report stated she died of asphyxiation. She had suffered facial injuries and bruising on her neck. This would be consistent with her face being held down into the sand. Dr. Klepp also noticed that the only drug in her system was alcohol. Her bladder was full, and she had not been raped or sexually assaulted, in Dr. Klepp's opinion. She was unable to get an accurate blood alcohol reading because her body had been embalmed in Mozambique. Dr. Klepp stated that she was surprised to see how much sand was still in Allie's mouth and throughout both bronchial tubes leading to her lungs. She inhaled sand, a lot of it. The pathologist went on to say that any qualified doctor would know this was not an accidental death and that Ellie was murdered. And here's the tragedy on top of the tragedy that is Ellie's death. The police and Tofu have treated her death as if it were just an accident. There doesn't seem to have been any real investigation or progress by the police department there in almost eight years. Immediately after her death, Paul Warren's mind was focused on finding the monster who had taken his daughter's life. But weeks passed and there was no progress or news from Mozambique authorities. Six months after Ellie's death, the police issued a report saying she died of an overdose. They believed she was high and collapsed into the dirt while she was going to the bathroom. Her body was found near what I call a squatty potty, or a hole in the ground. The report completely contradicted the autopsy results. How could this be? Ellie's father was disgusted. Everyone knew Ellie never touched drugs, 
and the autopsy had shown there were none in her system. The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade intervened and pointed this out to the Mozambican police, at which point they changed their report and now claimed it was murder after all. So six months had gone by and they had done nothing. When Paul appealed to the Australian Federal Police for help, they claimed they couldn't help because they had to go through an application process in order to be involved. At this point, the investigation in Tofu ground to a complete halt. Honestly, it had probably ground to a halt months before this. Paul Warren's only option was to investigate her death himself. If you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself, was his motto, especially in regard to his perception of the local Tofu police and their bumbling efforts, or lack of effort, into investigating his daughter's death. He flew to Mozambique with a bodyguard and a translator, and made his way to the exact spot where Allie's body was found. As he glanced around and saw the hard-packed dirt, he thought back to the report about Allie having sand in her lungs. He knew right then and there that she'd been killed somewhere else and then dumped at the toilet block, but how could he prove it? His plan was to bring awareness to the media and to the locals that he was in town and look for information. He had partnered with 60 Minutes Australia and made the trip to Tofu. He put posters up all over and introduced himself to as many locals as he could. Many of the locals were surprised to see him and were even more surprised to learn he suspected foul play. Most of them had been told that Ellie overdosed and had no idea that the autopsy showed that she'd been murdered. Hours after he posted the flyers, a man approached Paul, telling him that he had a photo of Ellie's body and that he'd sell it to Paul for a small price. When Paul was shown the picture, it brought tears to his eyes. In this picture, his daughter was not face down in a prayer position as he'd been shown before in blurry police photographs. Instead, she was face down on her belly. Her face was in the dirt, her legs were spread apart, and her underwear was down around her ankles. This photo added fuel to his fire, and he felt deep in his heart that she'd been killed and that she'd been sexually assaulted as well. This photo had been taken hours before the photos taken by police. He asked the man if the police had a copy of the photo, and the response was no. This, of course, came as a shock to Paul. How could he have found this photo in only six days when the police had supposedly been working on the case for over six months and they didn't have it? The picture showed Allie's back, legs, and arms covered with black sand, which was different from the sand found in her lungs. This was further proof that she'd been killed somewhere else. The sand in her lungs was yellow, like out on the beach area, where the sand on her body was black and dirty, like the sand near the bathrooms. This indicated she'd been dragged there. At this point, Paul began to wonder if the police had deliberately repositioned her body, because the murder of a Western girl would hurt the local tourist industry. If somebody moved her body, I imagine it would have had to have happened very quickly after her death before rigor mortis sets in. I'm not an expert, but I believe that rigor mortis sets in around three hours after death, so her body probably wouldn't have been able to be moved into this prayer position if rigor mortis had set in. Police in the area were described as corrupt, and rumors were that some even robbed tourists themselves. I watched a 60 Minutes Australia episode on this case, and in one part of the video, they have authorities stating that it would be easy to kill someone and throw their body in the water and they'd never be found.
and that it happens all the time. A young woman from Scotland came forward after hearing about Ellie's death on 60 Minutes. She wanted to share her story of her experience in tofu. Sarah Hayrikian, which I probably pronounced wrong, so I apologize, Sarah. Her nightmare started when she was followed from a bar named Fatima's in 2010. She was alone when a man grabbed her arm and held a weapon against her back. He threatened her in broken English, saying, I'm going to kill your insides. You better sex me right now. Sarah was steered quietly towards a residential part of the beach. She believed she confused the man by not struggling and just talking to him, and while doing so, the man loosened his grip a little. She realized that it wasn't a knife he was holding against her back, but a baton that he held. In retrospect, she realized it was a police baton, but at the moment she didn't know that. She was acting on instinct, and she grabbed it and threw it as far as she could. After she did that, he began struggling with her, grabbing at her clothes. He yanked her hoodie off, and as he did, she let out the loudest scream of her life. An American tourist and a few others heard her screaming and ran to the beach, which scared her attacker off. I think these people are incredibly brave for running to her rescue. They reassured her and escorted Sarah to the police station to report the assault. While she was telling the officers about the incident, she spotted her attacker lingering in the background. She stood up and pointed at him and only then did she realize he was wearing a police uniform. She said at that point she was absolutely terrified and wanted to throw up. The accused officer denied the claims and lied, saying he had been trying to rescue her from two men and that she had been smoking pot. While he's telling his side of the story, he was holding and pointing an AK-47 at Sarah and her friends. She remembers thinking, this can't be happening. They can't shoot us right here in front of everyone. After heated exchanges, the officers demanded money and threatened that Sarah would be arrested and tossed into jail if they didn't pay. While two Americans who had helped her were handing over some cash, she and several others ran and had the officers chase them. She was so scared that she reportedly hid underneath a bed, listening to police run past outside. She described feeling like what happened in the station was a hundred times more terrifying than what happened with the actual attack. She said, I feel like an attack like that could happen anywhere in the world. But the police corruption part was so scary because there was no one there to help us. There was no one to turn to. She had never felt this vulnerable before. Sarah's attack happened only 320 yards from where Ellie's body would be found. The day after Sarah and her friends ran from the police, she contacted the British High Commissioner for help. They told her she could leave Africa, but she was stubborn. She decided that she was going to go back to the police station with several of her friends. But the second trip led to more accusations of drug use. Her policeman attacker was at the station and even followed her and her friends to a bar afterwards. Sarah reported the rape to the local tourist board and a tour company called All Out Africa, with whom she was volunteering at the time. When she returned to Scotland, she was told the officer had been fired, but she doubts the report. She wouldn't be surprised if it was the same group of police officers who were involved in Ellie's case as either the perpetrators or as part of a cover-up. With the Mozambique police not being willing to look into the case, and with limited time and money, Paul Warren was forced to go home. He would visit Mozambique again, spending more time and money investigating Ellie's death, but he was essentially flying blind until a message came from a woman out of the blue. In 2020, 
Trapped by the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, Paul would get a phone call from a woman who had a strange story to tell and even more chilling details about his daughter's death. The woman didn't want any money, and she didn't contact Paul right away when the incident happened, but it bothered her and ate at her until she felt she had to reach out. What the woman had to tell him was that while on holiday in Tofu, her teenage children had run into an unsavory character. The woman's initial communication with Paul was that one night her kids came home from the market and asked the caretaker if they knew a guy named Tony. The caretaker got a look on his face and said, I can't say anything except that Tony is not a nice man. Stay away from him. The next day, the concerned mother asked the caretaker more about Tony, and he said, Do you know about the Australian girl? Tony and his gang were behind that. The family would see Tony a few times over the next few days. He would hang out in a little pub next door to a pizza place. He was described as dangerous-looking and had tattoos all over his face. The family believed he was a drug dealer, and were told that he spikes tourists' drinks and steals from them. Paul didn't know what to do with this information, especially in the midst of travel bans, but he was in luck. Around that same time, German private investigator Nick Greger approached Ellie's father, offering his services. Nick was a reformed neo-Nazi leader who was once considered one of Europe's most dangerous men. He spent several years in prison for plotting terror attacks against minority groups, but now he renounced his skinhead past and wanted to do good in the world. He said that although his colorful past was behind him, he still had contacts in the crime world, and now he uses his unique skills and contacts to help others. He claims to know how criminals think and where they will be hiding. He has become an expert in hunting criminals and tracking the networks they use to thrive and expand illegal businesses. His new profession is quite lucrative in places like Africa, where law enforcement agencies are largely under-resourced. Nick McGregor came up with a plan, which he had to conduct from home because coronavirus travel bans prevented him from traveling to Africa, but this didn't slow him down much. He was able to identify his prime suspect in just two days. He reached out to local sex workers, asking if they'd be interested in cozying up to a suspected crime lord as part of an international operation to catch a murderer. It was fairly obvious to him not to send a foreigner to Tofu because it would garner too much attention. Many locals fear these crime gangs and aren't going to say anything, especially to a foreigner. A better plan would be to recruit a local sex worker to befriend Tony, who had been named as suspect. The plan was that this incredibly brave woman would cozy up to him and then mention Ellie's death. After a few attempts, she was somewhat successful in catching some good audio recordings. Unfortunately, there was no smoking gun. Tony spoke about some of the crimes he committed, and even threats he made about killing people. But nothing solid was said about Ellie's murder. The investigation stalled again. Paul is still looking for his daughter's torn black t-shirt, which was visible in the fisherman's photo of her, but not bagged and tagged by police, who had reportedly neither kept the evidence or any crime scene photos, or at a minimum, they aren't willing to share them. Since Ellie's t-shirt was ripped open and was a vital piece of evidence that proved a struggle took place, he was upset that it hadn't been saved and couldn't be tested for DNA. As of February 2021, Australian authorities have become involved and asked Mozambique police to hand over documents from their investigations 
These would include crime scene evidence, police theories, witness statements, and potential suspects, all ahead of a coronial investigation into Ellie's death. It seems as though the Mozambique police have received the requests, and they say they're still working on it locally, but in honesty, they have been as helpful as the letter G in lasagna. No further information or formal answers to the questions or requests has been provided. One more item of note for this case is that on TripAdvisor, there are notes of warning to tourists, the first of which is posted from 2013, three years before Ellie died. The user warned tourists about what she calls the notorious Beach Boys. She says visitors to Tofu should be very careful of the Beach Boys that frequent the local bars and backpacker clubs. They're on the lookout for easy prey. She said they generally have dreadlocks and sell drugs. The local police are either paid off or informed by the Beach Boys of impending sales. The tourists then get arrested. The police ask for enormous bribes in order to drop the drug charges. Tourists are also befriended by the Beach Boys, who can be extremely charming, and once they know when a tourist will leave Tofu, the tourist is robbed the night before their departure, with international flights pending. The cases may be reported to the police, but nothing happens because the victims have to depart. They also warn to be careful in the local bars, as drinks can be laced with drugs that cause amnesia and unsolicited sexual encounters. A second message, dated three months after the first, is from an expatriate living in Tofu, who posted about one particular beach boy who considers himself something of a pariah. This man operates out of a low-end guest house and bar, and tourists are warned to avoid him at all costs. It seems to me as maybe the locals know about a particularly bad person, but they can't do anything about it because they're afraid of the consequences that could be doled out by this particular person. I'm not discouraging anyone from traveling abroad. Most of my favorite places are like Tofu. They aren't heavily visited by tourists. I would still go. I would just encourage everyone, but women in particular, not to go anywhere alone, especially in the middle of the night, even just to use the communal bathrooms. I really hope that the Australian authorities continue to help in this case and that Paul finds success in, in finding his daughter's killer. We'd all love to have this case be solved. If by any chance a listener happens to know something about this case, please contact the Australian authorities. And if you're not comfortable doing that, reach out to me and I will make that connection for you. You can reach me at twistedtravelandtruecrime at gmail.com or through Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. I'd love to hear from you whether it is about a particular case or a case suggestion or just saying hi, don't be shy. I'd like to thank a couple listeners for taking the time to write a review on iTunes. I really appreciate uh, anyone giving this podcast a good rating or review, or constructive criticism is always welcome too. Uh, first, I'd like to thank Jana T, who says, Love, I came across this podcast in a Facebook group, and the description of the latest episode caught my attention, so I looked it up. I was hooked within the first two minutes. I love Sandy's voice. I have definitely found a new favorite to listen to. Thank you, Jana. I'd also like to thank that dude's mom who says, This is one of my very favorite podcasts, and I have about 50 that I listen to. I used to love it when she was on her boat. I still like it, even though she's not anymore, but I definitely miss those boat sounds. I miss those boat sounds, too. And holy cow, 50 podcasts? 
I am flattered that I'm one of your favorite. Thank you so much. And last but not least, I'd like to thank Chef's Kiss, who wrote, Thank you so much for providing us with a great podcast. Yours is a source of comfort. So good and no unnecessary banter. Yay. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I have the best listeners. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Take care.